Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. So previously on the show, uh, we usually talk about policy-related matters, uh, including um, development finance, U.S.-Russian relations, um, even the financial crisis, but we never really talked about anything STEM, science-related. So today I thought uh, I'd pivot a little bit, uh, and we got a wonderful guest on the show. Uh, his name is Mike Lemonick. Uh, he's the opinions editor uh, at Scientific American and has written more than 50 Time Magazine cover stories on science uh, and also for National Geographic, The New Yorker, uh, and other publications. Um, it's great to have Mr. Lemonick on the show with us, but since I'm not a big science guy, uh, I'm actually collaborating to today's episode uh, with my friend Brian. So Brian's a graduate student in Princeton and the host of radio show These Vibes Are Too Cosmic. Uh, it's a talk show program on, the, on Princeton's WPRB 103.3 FM where experts share cutting-edge science research uh, with listeners. So definitely te- check that out. Uh, it's truly a great pleasure to work with Brian on this episode. Um, and interview Mr. Lemonick. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today, Mr. Lemonick. It's good to be here. Yeah, so uh, I think, Tiger, you wanted to start off talking about kind of science journalism. Just Mike has had such an illustrious career, maybe what that's been like. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, why don't we just start with the broadest question? What is science journalism? How, how is it different from... I guess the term scientific journalism. I've or, never heard the term scientific journalism. Oh, you never journalism. heard of that? No, uh, so that's completely unfamiliar. What is scientific writing or something? Scientific writing, yeah. Yes. So, so when, I, when I hear the term scientific writing, I think about people who write journal articles, for example, scientists who write articles about their, their research. Um, and so it's writing by scientists for other scientists. And so it tends to be somewhat technical. It's not the kind of thing that non-scientists would have an easy time reading, or even scientists in other fields. So if a physicist is doing scientific writing, a biologist might have trouble getting through it because there are a lot of technical terms and jargon and so on. So, so that I have nothing to do with that. I'm unqualified to do that. I get bored when I read it. Um, I write for general audiences. I write for people who are interested in science, might not know a lot about it, and just want to know what's going on in the world of science. So is it more about writing and journalism, or is it more about science for you when it comes to science journalism? Boy, that's a tough question. I'm, I'm not sure it's more about anything, uh, about either of those. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's about journalism in that I am finding out what's going on in the world of science, what's the latest, uh, the latest research result, uh, what are scientists thinking about, what are they working on, what does it have to do with the lives of the rest of us. How, how does it actually affect us? Um, so that's the journalism part. The science part is that I have to be able to explain what they've actually done. So usually for science journalists, are they all like PhD degree scientists or uh, what, what kind of l- level of proficiency in science yeah, do you need? So, so all of them except me uh, are PhD. No, uh, people often ask me the question, people who are interested in getting into science journalism, they say, is it better to have a degree in, or an experience or a background in journalism or a background in science? And my answer is yes. By which I mean, there are people who have PhDs who are also really good at explaining science to the general public at at, um, 
understanding what the average person is likely to know and what they need explained and what what level uh, at what level they can understand the science. Um, but there are some PhD scientists who have no clue about how to do that. They've forgotten how to talk to ordinary people. They just can't do it. Um, so you might, it might be an advantage, it might not be, to have a PhD. So in a talk you gave at uh, the University Research Magazine Association, you actually mentioned that there is a fundamental incompatibility between uh, science and journalism sometimes, because you explained that while well, journalism often aims to produce the latest, newest information to the public, and, and often does so, science is more about, it's less about that. You know, it's, it's the latest result is not usually the most important, the most authoritative, um, so, and you need a systemic accumulation of knowledge in one field. So therefore, writing news about science can sometimes be quite a, a dilemma. So how, how do you feel about this kind of incompatibility? Well, it's not, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a problem, but I'm not sure there's anything that could be done about it. The, uh, the problem is that, uh, as, you, as you said, journalism is by definition about the latest thing that happened. So it's more important than anything that went before it. It replaces what was old with what is new. Whereas with science, uh, as you suggested, the latest result is often the most tentative. It's the most, um, uh, it's the one that needs most to be examined. Examined, replicated by other scientists. It's really exciting if true, but you can't really be sure it's true until it's reproduced and it's pondered and and scientists, other scientists have had a chance to uh, to react to it. So in order to, I I cannot write a story for for a journalistic outlet that says, here's this result that probably, that might go away and it might not mean anything and don't pay any attention to it because six months from now it might, might be gone. I can't do that because my editors would say, you're crazy. Nobody would read that. Why would you tell people that something is very tentative? So I'm very curious about science journalism because you worked at a big media organization like Time Magazine. And do you think they tend to focus more energy on politics and social issues rather than science? Because, like, you know how you when, you when you flip a magazine, like, science is always put in the back of the section, you know, The Economist, Time. Right. Um, right. And in fact, when, when I was at Time, uh, we had, I think, th- uh, two, two or three divisions. We had Nation, the News of the Nation, the News of the World. That's the second one. And then we had what we called the back of the book, literally, because it was in the back of the magazine. And that included arts, science, business, all the things that are not sports that are not considered sort of vital uh, in a news magazine. But, but, but things like entertainment, like sports, those are often fueled by the pop culture and, and the modern social media, whatever, to be, to be very popular among uh, people across all age groups. And, and you see people flock to those sections even though they don't really seem to be the, the core right. issues of the country. Right. So, um, right. So, so you're right. Those are very popular areas. Many, many, many Americans are really interested in sports. I'm not one of them, so I have to kind of fake it sometimes uh, in conversation. Um, or, or art or music or... Uh, those are things that a lot of people care a lot about. Well, m- music in a, in a way more than art. Art, popular music. Um, 
nevertheless, they're not considered crucial, you know, for our for your to to be a, a good citizen. I guess is it? Do you see this as an issue in, in the sense that would people argue? Oh, it just takes too much brain power and space to mental energy to think about science issues and read science journalism. And um, I'd rather just read an article about some painting or, or some music, whatever. Do I see it as an issue? Well, issue implies that there's something that can be done about it. Um, I think I see it as a fact. Um, the you know, people. So here's here's an example I often use. I live in Princeton, New Jersey, very educated town, a lot of PhDs, a lot of doctors and lawyers and people, you know, they read the New York Times all the time and they sometimes read Time Magazine, <laughs> sometimes read Scientific American. And if you were sitting with a group of people, you know, in Princeton and you were talking, uh, somebody brought up uh, a Shakespeare play. Well, you, I mean, it, it would be sort of embarrassing to say, oh, yeah, Shakespeare, I actually never saw any of those plays or never read them. It's kind of boring. You would not say that. You'd be embarrassed. Or somebody was talking about, you know, uh, classical music or something. Um, you, you might not know anything, but you'd be kind of embarrassed. In fact, I, w I went to a, um, a dinner party 25 years ago, and everybody was talking about jazz. And I was like, I don't know anything about jazz. I had nothing to say, and I was embarrassed by it. Because that's, you know, intellectuals like jazz, just in case you didn't know. Um, but if you say something, if you start talking about science, people will, will cheerfully say, oh, science, ha-ha, <laughs> I don't understand science. And they'll think that's amusing. Exactly. It's a cultural, it's a, it's a cultural fact in the U.S. But I guess you could say that this sort of interest and passion, or at least literacy in science, could be cultivated from a young age, or, or well, that... It can be, but nobody's found a way to do it um, on a mass scale. The, and they've been trying forever. The, the kinds of innovative, when I was in eighth grade, we had this, there was this group at MIT that came up with an innovative science curriculum that was like nothing else. And it was going to really uh, just, it was going to change the way science was taught. It was going to have to do with exploration and hypothesis and, and you know, real, the re way science is really done and not just facts, right? So, um, so they, they trotted this out and they tried it out on us and we made fun of it because we were in eighth grade and, um, and it was kind of, it was kind of, so, I mean, I don't know how long you want me to digress on this, but for example, <laughs> there were, a lot of it was photographs. So there would be a, a photograph, a beautiful photograph of um, the Grand Canyon and we were supposed to hypothesize about how it might have come to be and basically, we're not stupid. We know that people already know how it came to be, that this was just kind of a phony exercise. And if you really wanted to know, you could look it up. So the idea that we we're going to pretend to be hypothesizing about... So it was just... I mean, it was very well-intentioned, but it fell completely fat, flat. And then there were these uh, photographs of the moon. You know, what, what is the moon made of? And it's like, come on, guys. You can look it up. So, so for, you know, for, for kids, just, it was just clueless, and it went away. So, so I guess you could, you could, you were just saying it's a fact that um, science doesn't attract as, as many people. So, you know, a lot of people, I'll say more people listen to music than they would looking at fine arts or appreciate sculpture, although right. they're all arts, or they're all kind of something that requires your attention or mental energy. But so, so you guess inherently it's just harder 
to get people to grab people to science journalism to to there's so there's no cultural pressure to be knowledgeable about science that's what i'm saying generally in america there's cultural pressure so if i am with a group often of men but more more and more these days with women as well and they want to talk about the big game you know who who do you like in the super bowl you're supposed to have an opinion i never have an opinion but there's but it's clear just by the way people act They're, they have a super bowl party nobody has a nobel prize party um so and you so you so it is expected that you will know about sports especially if you're male and so that's cultural pressure it's expected you will know about um popular tv shows um but it is not expected that you will know about science i think we're really tapping into something deeper here so, i mean i people have always been arguing that you know we've made a lot of scientific progress mm -hmm. we've made a lot of progress as a society that you know people are more educated people are richer so they could devote more time to knowledge intellectual curiosity but it doesn't seem like the popularity of science or or the cultural acknowledgement of science has really changed much in the past couple of decades or uh, even the, hundreds the, of years you know? the only thing that's changed i would say in the past 30 or 40 years is that for, if, so in the early part of the uh, the 1900s nobody even talked about it i mean it was just it was just this sort of weird thing that some weird people did. And if, you know, when Einstein, uh, he had, um, there's a great headline in the New York Times, I can't quote it, from when Einstein's general theory of relativity uh, was confirmed by observations of the sun and, and uh, during an eclipse. There was a headline um, in the New York Times. So they, they reported on it, but it was not thing, something that people really uh, talked about or read about or thought about much. And then in the aftermath, so then in um, the 1930s, as the Nazis were, were taking over Germany, they drove a lot of scientists, a lot of scientists fled Europe. So Germany in particular was the world center of science, physics especially, but other sciences. And all of those, most of those scientists fled because they were going to be put in concentration camps. Um, and they came, a lot of them came to the U.S., and then World War II happened, and physicists invented the atomic bomb, which ended the war. They invented radar, which helped us, which helped us win the war. They, physicists had saved civilization. That was the, the popular uh, presentation of what had happened. And so there was a kind of a, a worship of science that arose, um, and uh, and and in in medicine, you know, uh, in the twenties they discovered antibiotics, which were not widely used until maybe the the uh, the forties. Um, vaccines in the fifties, polio, which was a terrifying disease, was essentially wiped out by vaccinations, and then other vaccines came along, and so medical and physical sciences were transforming the world. They were they were just doing amazing things. And um, and then, as the 70s and the 80s came, we learned that there was a dark side to all of it, that, uh, that atomic bombs were not as wonderful as maybe you thought, that soldiers who were exposed to them during tests were developing all sorts of horrible um, illnesses, uh, that um, antibiotics were developing resistance, that new 
viruses were emerging, Ebola and, and Lyme disease and HIV were emerging, and nobody had expected that we would get new ones, and suddenly all of this incredible progress, uh, and, then, and then it was also revealed that, uh, that uh, medical doctors had, had uh, conducted incredibly unethical experiments on people without their knowledge, um, you know, uh, letting it, at the famous Tuskegee experiments, letting black men with syphilis go untreated to see what happened. Just in, insanely irresponsible things, and that tarnished the reputation of science a lot. So the prophecy sort of failed in in a sense that yeah. people suddenly, yeah, don't. Right. Well, so 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 right. So people people began to distrust that scientists were these great saviors of humanity, which is valid, but it's also unfortunate because science has done things that have been incredibly um, beneficial to humanity. So we could say that science has always been both good and bad. It's just sometimes the good is more exhibited a little bit more. Well, oh, but, but early on, it was just off in the corner and nobody paid much attention. So good, bad, or indifferent. So you still say that science has become more popular in the, in the past, or, or how, do you think this is a linear progress in the sense that, you know, 50 years down the line, 100 years down the line, would see more people get interested in science, science being respected more, or what do you still uh, think? Well, I mean, I think that people are still excited by scientific discoveries that either inspire awe or inspire hope for the cure of diseases or inspire, um, I don't know, I can't think of a third item. So, so, but that's largely because of the way we talk about it, we journalists. That's how people learn about science. But, but don't you think that, I guess, the, the role of science is kind of being replaced by tech right now, like tech journalism. People are all talking about tech. No. You know, instead of worshiping a physicist's discovery, we worship Tesla. We worship Apple's new right. product. Right, right, right. People, yeah, people are much interest, more interested because, um, you know, when I write about some, uh, some discovery in physics, I have to explain to you why you should care about it. If I, um, but if I tell you there's a new iPhone that you know is is will work on a 5G network. It'll be a thousand times faster than your existing phone. People already have phones. They 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 uh, are wedded to their phones. An improvement in something you already care about. Yeah. So it's less about tech. It's just like one thing is more like consumer product, something that's more pertinent to people's lives, and the other is more fundamental research. Right, and the thing that we always have to do in, in science, so if I write a, uh, a story about, about you know, uh, the Mueller report came out and it, it doesn't say anything bad about Trump or anything too bad about Trump, I don't have to explain to people, oh, this is who Trump is and this is what a Mueller is and this is what, they're, what we're talking about. You don't have to explain these things. Whereas with, with basic scientific research, you do have to explain you know what is a quasar, and and uh, why do we care if it's the earliest one, and so on. You have to define these terms that are very unfamiliar. Last section, we were just talking about um, whether human beings have actually made a lot of progress um, so far in terms of um, science education, in terms of reaching this cultural awareness. 
uh, I think we're tapping into something really deep. So I just, I guess, wrap up those thoughts with and by asking Mr. Levinick, so you don't see this as a, as a linear thing, and, and by that I mean uh, science, as people get richer, as people get more educated, people just like science more and uh, will devote more time into reading about those things. So it's just hard to say whether we made progress or not. Well, made progress in what? We certainly have made enormous progress in science. We've made enormous progress in technology. We just haven't made enormous progress in Getting that cultural awareness right, in people, right? right. right. So I, we were just uh, talking during the break, and you mentioned this fascinating insight of, about Seth MacFarlane and Neil deGrasse Tyson. I was I wanted to, to ask you about it again. Yeah. Oh yeah. So 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 you know, people who do care about science, scientists and science journalists, um, and just people who love science, are frustrated by the fact that it's not widely popular and and um, it's not everybody's favorite thing, and. Their, um, their frustration sometimes leads them into uh, self-delusion. And so I was talking about the fact that a few years ago when they were talking about rebooting the Cosmos uh, TV series that, that uh, Carl Sagan made famous in the 1970s, but that this time the star would be Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was very popular, and it would be produced by Seth MacFarlane, who... I actually didn't know who that was, but I, I'm told he uh, produced a cartoon called Family Guy that a lot of people like. So that's so so a lot of my friends in that world of science and science journalism were convinced that this would make a dramatic difference in the public interests in science because the young people they love Family Guy, uh, and so they're going to love this show and it's going to be innovative and it's going to be Neil deGrasse Tyson being fun and. And this will make a big difference. And you know, I was thinking all along, people, you're kidding yourselves. This is crazy. It's not going to make any difference at all. And I think that has turned out to be the case. What, what about the Big Bang Theory? Uh, oh, the, right, the TV show The Big Bang. That's the other thing that, that people grab onto and say, well, you know, it's bringing science. It's bringing physics to the public, which I also think is completely delusional because, first of all, it doesn't bring physics to anyone, it you know the characters use physics terms that sound very geeky, um, uh, you know, and they refer to I don't even want Schrodinger's equation or something, um, but they don't explain it. They don't tell people. It's just like oh, there are those physics guys saying things we don't understand, and what it really does is presents physicists as being really weird people who are not like ordinary humans, and aren't they quaint and amusing, which is a disservice to science. So you don't think it actually does anything for no. helping us? Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, so so it's it's great to hear all those insights on science journalism, uh, awareness for science. Science. I want to turn a little bit more about policy since we're, after all, called Policy Punchline. Um, you've been doing this for quite some time. How has the way Washington and the media handle climate change uh, where science-related issues sort of changed uh, over the past couple of decades. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on well, that. Well, so when I first started writing about climate change in a, a serious way, it was in, the, it was in 1987, and we uh, did a, a big cover story for Time on, on um, global warming, that, you know, climate change, um, but we didn't call it that then. 
we call it global warming, which is reasonable to do. Um, and also in this big story, we talked about the ozone hole, which is very mostly unrelated, but it's another example of how humans are changing the atmosphere with possibly dangerous consequences. And it was very well received. And and a year later, James Hansen, the the uh, NASA climate scientist, testified before Congress and said, "I you know." I believe we're seeing the signal of climate change emerge from the sort of background noise of climate of ordinary fluctuations. And that made big headlines, especially because uh, he did this testimony during a really uh, intense heat wave in uh, July, I think, of, of 1988, which, you know, because the media were kind of shallow, uh, a story about global warming when it's really hot outside makes bigger impact than if it had been in the winter. Um, and politicians started talking about it, and I, I always love to remember that the first George Bush, who was a Republican, said on the campaign trail that we are going to deal with the greenhouse effect, which is a, another name for, for, uh, um, uh, for climate change, with the White House effect. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this when I'm president, which he never did, um, but, but there was a general acceptance that the scientists have found something important and we need to find something to do about it. But as it became clear what we had to do about it, which was essentially to drastically transform the way we produce and use energy, that was the main thing. There are other practices as well, you know, uh, forestry and, and agriculture and, and so on. And it turns out that the making of cement is one of the big contributors to climate change as well. Um, we would have to do so many things so drastically differently that it would be very disruptive and expensive and people would have to change the way they lived. And as that began to sink in, resistance to the idea of doing it, not because, not because the science is wrong, but because, I mean, the, I should say the, um, the fallback position of people who didn't want to actually deal with this stuff was that the science is wrong. That began to emerge in the 1990s as people realized what they would have to do if they accepted that the science was right, that the backlash became incredibly powerful and politically important. And it became kind of a rallying cry for Republicans and conservatives to say climate change is all a hoax. Um, and, it, and it was in their interest to say so because it would have required such change and, and, and profits at some business, a lot of businesses would have uh, been affected and rich people would have been less rich and so on, um, that climate denial became a thing. You know, it was not a thing when we first started talking about, about climate change. Would you say that climate change is finally getting some limelight in the political world these days? When I first started writing about it, the idea was, well, if we just give people the facts delivered um, uh, by major um, prominent scientists who know what they're talking about, that will be enough to change people's minds. And then it turns out this backlash became much more powerful because it's, it's much easier to say your taxes are going to go up and your energy is going to cost more and you're not going to be able to drive your SUV, that people can understand. 
the climate models project based on paleoclimate data and inputs from uh, weather stations that we project that by 2100 sea level, that's all vague and sciencey sounding and it's way in the future and your taxes will go up is much more powerful message. And so that's, I think, why the public was not, and I should say, the worst effects of climate change were going to happen off in the future. And if you look around you, and this is still true today, I was just outside before we came in here. It's kind of a, a early spring day. It's chilly, but not crazy. And it's beautiful. And I look around me and the trees are starting to bud and it looks perfectly normal. It's very hard to accept that terrible things are going on with the climate system when everything looks perfectly normal almost all the time. What I think is happening is that things are looking perfectly normal less and less of the time. So when you had those incredible wildfires in California over the summer which and the fall, which in fact are very clearly uh, in part a result of climate change, when you had uh, Sandy, Superstorm Sandy came ashore and devastated New York and New Jersey, that had a climate element to it. These extreme events are happening more often, they're more obvious, they're harder to ignore, and I think that the explanations of the, the physics of climate change didn't do anything. Again, it goes back to our original idea that people have to really feel that exactly. in their lives. Exactly, and I think they're, they are finally starting to feel it in their lives. So do you think the role of climate change will really impact the, the outcome of the 2020 uh, presidential election? I mean, we've seen, the, I think, a former governor of Colorado, he's making this entire platform about climate change. Yeah, and, 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 and how far is he going to get? I mean... <laughs> You know, I mean, talking about the 2020 elections now, I think, is ridiculous because, and in fact, I heard on NPR this morning, um, somebody was talking about, well, at this stage of the 2012 elections or the 20, uh, 2008 elections, here are who the leading candidates were. And it's like, oh, my God, they disappeared before summer. Um, the point being that anything, any, whoever's the front runner today, it's meaningless they, I mean, they might end up being the candidate, but, but it's meaningless to talk about a front-runner today, uh, you know, a year and a half before the election. Um, so many things could change. I do think that I wouldn't say climate is going to be a major factor in the election. I th and I certainly don't think that people whose main, uh, uh, main platform is we must fight climate change is going to have an advantage because of that. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think we're ready for that yet, but I do think that people's awareness keeps rising as the earth keeps telling us, hey, this is happening. And so it could be, so under normal circumstances, I would say that people just completely ignore any talk about climate in a presidential election in 2020. But I think that's less likely to be true, given that, that the planet is actually changing uh, measurably. And so I don't think it'll be a major factor. I think that people will not laugh at candidates who talk about climate change the way they did. You know, Obama did, basically never talked about climate change as a major campaign theme. Uh, Hillary Clinton didn't. I mean, she talked about it, but it wasn't a major theme. 
Um, and, but nobody paid any attention to it. So I think there's a, a chance that it will start to become more salient. So I'm very curious. Are you pessimistic about uh, the, the, whether we're going to resolve this issue? Because I mean, we just talked about how politicians are reluctant to do things, um, and the people don't really feel it in their lives. So, yeah. what can we rely on? International cooperation? That doesn't seem, you know, very realistic yeah, no, at this point, right? That's, that no, especially since Trump is now pissed off all of our allies. I mean, no. Um, so we're screwed. Oh, we are screwed. I believe we're screwed. <laughs> Partly because even if suddenly we woke up tomorrow and everybody got religion and said we must take immediate drastic action on a scale that is unprecedented to deal with this problem, the temperature would continue to rise for quite some time because, because the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere is going to be there. It's not going away. It takes a very long time to go away. And it will keep continue to trap excess heat. And so, so at this point, we are locked into significant climate change and significant um, damage from climate change. It's still not too late to start limiting the problem and reversing it with the idea that by, you know, 2100 or 2150, will be sort of on back on the downward slope, back toward uh, a more um, stable climate. But it's no, we are screwed. So, so let's say climate change is such an existential threat to, to the humanity. And will it be resolved if the entire science journalism community got together and say, we only write about climate change now. And we, just, we just talk to, <laughs> we constantly That's flood funniest. information That's to funny. people. No, just no. So we... Science journalism doesn't really help us in terms of. Well, I mean, the, not, I mean it, it help a little bit. Right. So, 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 um, uh, what am I? I'm trying to think of an analogy. Um, you know, it helps a little bit. It helps reinforce people's uh, understanding of how the climate is changing. So, if there are wildfires in California, and it's uh, uh, and part of the problem is that that. Um, Conditions have been very dry, and the snowpack that usually uh, helps keep things moist has all melted away and flowed down the rivers. And, um, you know, we keep having record wildfires. We keep having intense, intense rainstorms, which is another consequence of, of climate change. Not hurricanes, but just very intense rainstorms. Um, and journalists report on it and say, hey, people, look at this rainstorm, climate change. That absolutely reinforces that people, that what people are seeing is not normal. And so, yeah, it can absolutely help. Got you. But if we wrote about it all the time, people would tune out. Uh, I, I know you're also an expert on space and astrophysics, so I want to touch on that for, for a little bit. Okay. Uh, this whole idea of space force, I'm very curious about your, your thoughts um, on that. Okay, so space, yeah. People use the word space, and they basically mean anything that happens uh, outside, outside the yeah. atmosphere. So that includes human spaceflight. It includes the militarization of space. Um, it includes uh, satellites that do all sorts of different things, communication satellites and weather satellites. That has essentially nothing to do with, with galaxies, you know, hundreds of millions of light years away. So, yeah, that's also space, but it's just a completely different scale, completely different time scale. It's just not even 
remotely related, except that NASA is involved with both things. So I don't know much about the Space Force. I don't know. Uh, it, it, we, it is true that space could be militarized and that China, for example, is making some worrisome moves in that direction and that that could be a really big problem for us. It has nothing to do with, you know, our understanding of the origin of the universe. Um, I am not knowledgeable enough to know whether this Air Force Space Command, which is already a thing, um, needs to be broken off and, and made into its own branch of the military. I mean, I, I don't even know. I mean, it sounds like it's just window dressing. It's just a gimmick. It's just a marketing scheme. What about President Trump? I mean, I, I, was, I think I was reading uh, Twitter today and, and no, Vice President... Well, that was your first mistake. No. <laughs> Vice President Pence was tweeting about something like uh, President Trump wants to s send people back to moon in five yeah. years and, and do the... So that has nothing to do in terms of exploring space. Let's try to understand the, the astrophysics a little bit better. Right, so, so, so that kind of space exploration, you know, the idea of, of going to the moon or going to Mars and learning to live there and learning to um, uh, maybe um, exploit the mineral wealth that's there, maybe doing science there, uh, because there's a lot of amazing science that could be done if you were on the far side of the moon where there's no uh, interference from earthly uh, radio broadcasts, for example. Um, so, so, right, that's still not pure astrophysics, but, but there's a science element to it. There's a human exploration element to it, which is very romantic. Um, but everybody says they're going back to the moon or that they're not going. The thing, the way NASA works is that they, each president comes in and says, no, this is our new direction. And every, so NASA says, okay, we're going off in that direction. Then another president comes in and says, no, no. Forget that, we're going in a whole different direction. And the, so they do that for a while. It's, it's, so, it's such a ridiculous system that um, it, 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 there's no direction to it. There's, it's basically a president wants to have a legacy in space. You know, in, in the 60s, uh, John F. Kennedy and then Lyndon Johnson said, we're going to send humans to the moon, and they were in office long enough to do it. And then Richard Nixon came in, and he, he basically said, well, you know, we have some more Apollo missions scheduled to the moon, but that's not my project. That's like, that's like the Democrats. That's like I'm, me helping them continue right, their Right, I'm going to have my own thing. We're going to have the space shuttle, which was a very stupid idea in many ways. And it cost billions and billions and billions of dollars. But that's because Nixon had his own thing that he was going to do. Uh, you know, we might go back to the moon, we might go to Mars. I wouldn't bet on any of it because when the president goes out of office, the new president will have, you know, during uh, the Obama um, era, I believe it's when they had, uh, they were trying to think, well, what can our space legacy be? <laughs> and so what they decided to do uh, briefly was to help us sort of get used to working in space. We're going to go out and find a, a small asteroid and put it in a bag, I mean literally in a bag, a very large bag, and steer it to a lunar orbit and then astronauts will go there and study it. You haven't heard about that lately. Uh, no. No, because then Obama was out and then 
Trump is in. He, so there's no consistency. There's in that no sense. consistency. What about the scientific community? Do they have a consensus in terms of this is where the direction is, is headed, this is what we need to do? The like, scientific community. Oh, and the other thing about the space shuttle and the space station is they, they have, you know, it's this great laboratory for science in space. I mean, basically, as far as I know, they go up there and they grow uh, tadpoles and see if they know how to swim in space. And they, you know, they see if yeast will, I mean, it's just cutting edge science. I don't think so. Um, but they'd have to have something to do because they built this space station. Anyway, the, uh, you can see why they call me the opinion editor. <laughs> and um, and uh, the science, the actual science community is incredibly well organized. So, so, um, so every 10 years, the astronomers all get together and say, we are going to agree on the priorities for space science, astronomy and space science, and we're going to present these to, uh, you know, as a unified group to NASA. And, so, and they come out every 10 years. The f first thing we have to do is build a replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope. Then we have to do this, and then we have to do this. And, then, and, and so they are very um, focused on a... Um, a specific vision a specific well-planned vision that's actually leading somewhere so if you were to give any advice to politicians policymakers <laughs> about science climate change or astrophysics or any of that what would you say uh, so it's not really me it's it's what my um, i have some colleagues in scientific american who have been very thoughtful about this if we could possibly figure out a way to have the science budget not come up for a vote every year so you don't know as a scientist whether you're in astronomy or physics or in medical science how much money are we going to have for research what problems can we tackle to have a consistent five-year or ten-year budget uh, saying these are the things we're going to do and this is how much it's going to cost and have c Congress approve and not touch it after that that would be great I don't see politically how it's possible but you know over in Europe they do it that way. So the European Space Agency, um, they have a plan that everybody agrees on, and then they stick to it for five, six, ten years, and they, and they, the fu funding is already promised. They don't have to re-vote on it every year. The number of projects that are started and then canceled by NASA, because the political winds change, is crazy. Yeah, I, I just want to chime in on that and say, you know, as a scientist now, I mean, I'm sure, you know, anyone getting federal money would want a system more like this where money could be more secure over the years. But there's so much waste in science from a project, a really good project, starting off, getting off its feet. They build the lab, they publish a paper or two, and then the project is canceled, and then that money is just, you know, basically put in a warehouse and, so, and left to rot for or, a while. Or it's already been spent and it's not even available. There's, right. a, there's a big hole in Texas yeah. Where in the early 90s, they were going to big build the world's most powerful, powerful particle accelerator. And they, they spent a few billion, and they said, then Congress said, no, forget it. Right, right. And, and I mean, it's, a, it's, it's just, a, I, I just want to second that recommendation, yeah. Mike. It's a really, it would do so much for science if there were just consistency. Even, of course, more money would be great, too. But, but like consistency in, in the money is And really in your important. field of plasma physics, I mean, we've been talking about controlled fusion as a power source since the 1950s, and we're closer, but we're not anywhere near having it commercially available, and a large part of that is that the funding was just cut significantly in the 70s and 80s. That's agreed. 
So what about U.S. science policy compared to other countries? Do, do you think U.S. still doing a very good job in terms of, I mean, I, I know, I guess, in the universities, the research institutes, um, U.S. is still very much in the forefront. But is the government dragging those people back? Yeah, oh yeah, I think so. I, again, by not pr providing consistent, predictable funding. And, and if you look at a place like China, uh, where they don't have to worry about politics. You know, if the, if the um, central committee or wh whoever you know, is in charge says, okay, this is what we're going to spend the money on, that's what they spend the money on. And they're very focused in China on drastically improving their, their science footprint in many different areas. And they just said, we're going to do it and we're, because we said so. They're able to do it. So for young people these days, or just for the general public who, who read about science, who trying to get interested in science, what would you recommend as to what kind of publications you think would be, would be good starters? What, where do we get our most reliable information? How do we get more interested in science to eventually change this cultural awareness? Well, I, don't, I, I think I would, I would not be that ambitious. Um, <laughs> but. But um, I think Scientific American. Yeah, is yeah. Really how's good that? Place to start. <laughs> you know, Scientific American, Science News, the the New York Times. Um, we all do that thing where you have to make science seem as exciting as possible at the expense of maybe um, emphasizing the caveats and the questions. But um, but still, there the responsible outlets like like those that I mentioned um, do a pretty good job of at least people giving people a sense of what science is doing and why you should care. So last question, I guess, um, since our, the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I always ask our guests at the very end of the show uh, <coughs> what the policy punchline here is. Uh, science for journalism, for anything. The policy punchline is um, it's amazing that we get anything done, but somehow we do anyway because the scientists themselves are really dedicated to what they're doing. And so they are given a, um, a crazy situation to deal with, um, and yet they still push ahead and do, uh, do really important research. Awesome. All right. Yeah, I, I just want to, that, that was a really nice way to close it off. Uh, it, it just reminds me of, you know, how you said much earlier in the interview that science journalism might be hard, might come with a lot of, you know, difficulties, it's problems with how you have to explain things, whatever, but it's the only thing you really like to explain and it's the only thing that really makes you curious and so you're so driven to tackle this area of journalism anyway. I think that scientists, this is why they do science mm -hmm. because they're just, you know, hopelessly addicted to wanting to know what the answer it's is. It's totally selfish. Yeah. Um, but it has side benefits for, for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely, which is why, you know, we, we keep getting funding. The, the small amount of funding that we do get, mm -hmm. it, it does keep trickling in. Thank you so much for joining us today in the studio, Michelle Menek. It's, it's such a wonderful conversation. To well, thank you. I, I really from. enjoyed it. Of course. And thank you so much, Brian, for letting me come to your studio and sitting with me and doing this thing together. And that concludes this episode of uh, Policy Punchline with Mr. Lemonick and Brian Krauss from These Vibes Are Too Cosmic. Uh, definitely check out his show on Princeton's WPRB 103.3 FM. Uh, and please visit us on policypunchline.com. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Punchline. Uh, and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher if you like our show. I uh, really appreciate you listening today. Thank you.
You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.